0: Smart politics for stupid times. Welcome to the Unprecedented Podcast with John Aravosis and Cliff Schechter.
1: Welcome back, everybody. Thursday, September 16th. Uh, John Aravosis here alone. I finally booted Cliff. Not just kidding. Uh, Cliff is gone this week. And I decided to do a podcast myself with an old friend, uh, C. Dixon Osborne. Goes by Dixon. C. <laughs> that'd be kind of cute. you C. Hey, C. <laughs> it sounds like some cool name from the 70s, like on, you know, Starsky and Hutch. See, um, Dixon is the uh, or was the <coughs> co-founder, along with Michelle Beneky of the Service Members Legal Defense Network, which was the organization set up to defend uh, members of the U.S. military who were being kicked out under uh, for being gay. And um, since that time, Dixon, he's got a new book out about Don't Ask, Don't Tell. That's what we're going to talk about, uh, called Mission Possible, the story of repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Uh, but since that time, among other things, uh, I thought sort of the coolest thing you, you had done since then, in my opinion, was he was the executive director and president of the Center for Justice and Accountability, whose goal was going after war criminals worldwide, which could be its own podcast right there as far as cool, cool work. Um, but Dixon, welcome. And uh, I'm kind of thinking even, well, I guess tell tell us what the book is about, but then I also want to get into a little bit of Don't Ask, Don't Tell 101 for folks, because I think some of the history people, like even like the Clinton era and stuff, people never fully understand what was actually going on back then. So maybe tell us what the book is first.
0: All right. Thank you, John. Uh, yeah, the book Mission Possible really describes the 17-year strategy developed and implemented by Service Members Legal Defense Network to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Now, at a more macro level, though, of course, it is also the story of persecution coming out and triumph, ultimately. Uh, So I think it's a story that will appeal to those, not just those who've been in the military and served under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. It will appeal to those who are looking to some LGBT history. It should appeal to those who uh, you know, our NGO leaders and looking, how do you develop a long-term strategy, especially in this fractious day? How do you develop a long-term strategy that results in a big victory?
1: That's interesting because that's one of the things that I've been saying for years is that we had so many uh, victories, you know, on LGBT rights. Back then we called it gay. Um, but, but, but particularly on the gay front, specifically dealing with gay rights, we had so many victories that I think um, really could be a good template for other groups. Also, because to some degree, too, like we really I, I think we had an interesting mix of angry and subtle. You know, we were will, sort of we were willing to be act up ish and be in your face. But we also and I think you and Michelle certainly demonstrated that with SLDN were very astute at having um, smart, uh, detailed, subtle behind the scenes strategies as well. It was like a nice mix, and I don't know. I, maybe you wouldn't call yourselves act up. <laughs> you guys are probably a little more straight laced than that, I suspect. Um, <laughs> in terms of, what or you gay, would say laced, yes. But no, but you know no, what I mean. But I'm saying, in terms I, of don't ask, uh, don't ask, don't tell activists, though, we really had the the in your face side and the lobbying side, and it was a, a really, I think, a, lot, a smart strat- sort of two pronged strategy, really.
0: Yeah, I think you know, September 20th is the 10th anniversary of the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Right. And I think it's remarkable looking back uh, on uh, the years since 1993, since the law first went into effect, that uh, the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell remains the biggest pro lesbian, gay, bisexual legislation Congress has passed. Hmm. A lot of our other victories, of course, have come through the courts, and we've won some big victories. Yep. M- Mary, Michelle Mary. and I knew, and founding Service Members Legal Defense Network back in 1993, so there really are only two ways to you know, create systemic change, and that is either through the courts that develop a precedent upon which you can build or it's through Congress. I and understand. so part of what this book does is talk about both of those strategies as well as you know, the other strategies that you need to have to, to support any kind of legislative uh, movement.
1: Right. And you and Michelle, uh, both lawyers, as I recall, Correct.
0: Yeah, Michelle went to Harvard Law. He went to to Georgetown. Georgetown.
1: I know because Dixon and I would always meet at parties, and I would always forget he went to Georgetown, as like I did. (laughs) Actually, I have another friend, Joe. You know, do you know Joe Pig here Uh, in town? Oh, anyway, old, very old friend of mine. But same deal. Joe and I like every very good friend. But every few years, I re-realized that Joe was like a year behind me at Georgetown Law, which is funny. Um, you know, I'm wondering where's the best place to start. I almost feel like I'd like us to go back and do a little bit of don't ask, don't tell, or maybe even military ban 101 of what's the history of the gay ban in the military. And, you know, and we can get into the trans stuff too, as we go on, obviously, I I sort of wrote a quick note for that, but, but specifically don't ask, don't tell was dealing with the gay ban. Go back to sort of what the history was pre don't ask, don't tell. And then. And then we can then we'll start discussing what happened with Bill Clinton with Don't Ask, Don't Tell itself in
0: 1993. Sure. Uh, there was not always in place a ban on lesbian, gay, bisexual service members. Uh, and in fact, uh, uh, Baron von Steuben, who was the person that General Washington recruited from Prussia to organize the pledging uh, army, uh, was is widely reputed to have been gay and brought over his Prussian lover. And there's a statue of him in Lafayette Square in front of the white house but the the first uh you no know, real effort uh to to target people who uh you know were attracted to members of the same sex was uh you no know, in the early nineteen hundreds when they adopted the sodomy statute, but there was no ban on gay people until after world war II. uh and that's when the first ban came into place. And
1: would, would they route us out before if they found out?
0: You would, you would still be drummed out, uh, you know, for probably other reasons right. uh, and or shame to to leave. Uh, but in terms of official policy, it, it didn't exist until after World War II. And uh, they started dismissing gay people from uh, the military. No, in, in fairly large numbers back then, people got blue discharges, which was considered a no, know, a, a color of shame uh, that you had to take back to your hometown and, and show to any employer.
1: Can I ask you, did blue mean gay or did blue mean like dishonorable?
0: Dishonorable, yeah. Which is obviously,
1: uh, on its face, bad, because then it really sounds like God knows what you did. Well, and one of the things
0: uh, that, you know, any lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender service member will tell you if they were discharged for homosexual conduct, even under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, as they printed the words homosexual conduct on your discharge paperwork, oh, which in a certain day and age, you know, was a, oh. a career ender uh, as you try to apply yeah. to your local Piggly Wiggly. Uh, yeah. uh, but the, the, the real sort of administrative regulations that emerge actually came under the Carter administration, as, and it was in response to a very famous case by Leonard Matlovich. Uh, right. Who had served in Vietnam, who has a famous uh, grave in Congressional Cemetery with an ap- epitaph saying uh, that he got a Purple Heart for uh, you no know, killing a man and was discharged for loving one. Right. Uh, part of the reason that his case uh, you now sparked attention is that that he won his case, uh, being openly gay, and part of what the courts found was that there was sufficient latitude to retain. Uh, People with mission-critical skills that the commanders liked. Uh, He was, you know, very well liked uh, and, you know, an excellent service member. But having that kind of discretionary policy, you know, opened up a can of worms. How can you uh, justify kicking one person out but not the other person with the same credentials? And so the Carter administration actually came up with regulations to uh, say that Every person, essentially any person who is known to be gay, lesbian or bisexual should be discharged. Hmm. Those right. regulations then got implemented under the Reagan administration.
1: Right. So we're talking Carter's late 70s. Reagan is now early 80s. Right. Uh, and so that
0: was really the the real precursor to hmm. don't ask, don't tell. Right. And the the big mythology, you know, there was there are a number of lawsuits challenging Uh, those Carter regulations, uh, Colonel Kammermeyer being one of the most famous, Petty Officer Keith Meinhold and others. Uh, But these lawsuits were happening just as uh, Governor Bill Clinton came onto the scene and was running for president. And he asked uh, sort of the LGBT leaders, David Mixner and others, what he could do. And the response was, you know, with an executive order, You can change this law and, uh, no, end the discrimination against lesbian, gay, bisexual people serving in our armed forces.
1: And And, let me just reiterate. And there was, there actually wasn't a law on the books at this point, which is why the argument was Clinton could do an executive order.
0: That's exactly right. Uh, it was, it was just a regulation. And now the secretary of defense could alter the regulations or the president could Mm -hmm. as commander in chief could issue an executive order to, to alter them. Gotcha. Uh, So he made the promise and, you know, it was in a way the first time for LGBT Americans that we had a a person who became president and we were part of the American family. He he acknowledged us by name. He said he was going to be our champion. Um, But on day one, (laughs) when he was uh, inaugurated in January, uh, there was just a severe backlash that was a bipartisan backlash. Uh, So you had Senator Sam Nunn, a Democratic chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, as well as Senator Bob Dole, uh, basically saying, you are not going to issue an executive order or we will amend the Family Leave Act. uh, And uh, we are going to take these regulations and codify them into statute.
2: Well, have I ever mentioned to you what a carnivorous beast my mom is? She loves steak and burgers, right? We grow up on them. I've never seen her so happy when I sent her Omaha steaks and burgers for Christmas one year. Holidays around the corner, finding the perfect gift is tricky. Omaha steaks makes it easy to send friends and family an unforgettable gift guaranteed to be loved. Go to omahasteaks.com right now and enter Stephanie in the search bar to order the perfect gift package. For $99.99, you'll get 24 entrees, like the world-famous bacon wrap mignons, chicken breasts, sides, desserts, and so much more. When you use the code stephanie you'll also get an additional eight omaha steaks burgers free with your order we've all heard the reports about shortages and shipping delays so don't wait order the perfect gift package today at omahasteaks.com you'll get eight free burgers when you enter the code stephanie achieve gifting greatness with omaha steaks incredible flavor incredible value and 100 percent guaranteed that's omahasteaks.com the keyword is stephanie omahasteaks.com
1: Actually and let me let me jump in and who was the other villain who started rabble-rousing I would argue I think it was a week or two before the inauguration who's the other asshole uh, you know <laughs> you, Colin Powell Colin well, Powell Yeah one of the Yeah we're uh, allowed to swear I know you don't but I do
0: <laughs> you know, part of the reason why you know, the effort to uh to repeal the ban that existed then failed is because you had people like General Colin Powell, who was very public in his opposition. And uh, now there's even a memorable moment back in 1993 when he was on the steps of the Pentagon uh, discussing just how many calls were coming in of people who were opposed to gay people serving openly in our armed forces. And, you know, in in one sort of political view, sort of a real politic view, you you had really powerful... Individuals, well-respected individuals, from General Colin Powell to General Norman Schwarzkopf, to yep. Senator Sam Nunn, all opposing the president on this issue, and the president's support of repeal was really pretty meek. Uh, so it was unsurprising <laughs> that the result of uh, Clinton's promised issue an executive order ended up being Congress taking that authority away from him and codifying essentially the same ban. Into law. Now, part of why Bill Clinton sold it as a quote-unquote honorable compromise uh, uh, and a reasonable step forward, those are quotes from him during his speech at uh, Fort McNair announcing Don't Ask, Don't Tell, is that in the regulations that the Pentagon developed to implement this law were essentially all these sorts of promises that gave LGBT people a little bit more latitude you could go to gay bars you could read publications right. like the advocate uh you know you could march in a pride parade and none of these were supposed to be a basis for discharge and the problem that
1: can i jump in real quick supposedly yeah. supposedly the what they what they claimed they were doing, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. They were claiming, well, now what the law is going to be is you can be gay, you just can't tell anyone, and if you tell anyone you're gay, then we're going to kick you out. And so those rules came into place saying. Because we all started saying, well, actually, they even said, don't ask, don't flaunt. I remember at one point we were like, oh, God, you're using that word. But but we were arguing, "Okay, does marching in a gay parade mean you're gay? And they said, well, straight people do that, so that would be okay." Does blah, blah, blah mean you're gay? So that's where, as I recall, that's where this funny thing came about where you could do these various things because it didn't mean you admitted you were gay. But once you admitted publicly you were gay, then you were out.
0: So the idea was, uh, you know, they called it Don't Ask, Don't Tell. In some variations, is don't ask, don't tell, don't pursue, exactly. uh, and ultimately, uh, back in two thousand one, we got it changed, sort of to don't ask, don't tell, don't pursue, don't harass. Right. Uh, so the, you know, they they were essentially trying to suggest that if you were discreet, nothing bad would happen. Right. Um, but the problem is, is you no, know, the idea of don't ask is, is itself a myth, and this is something that just the even the broad public didn't get is that. Now, as a gay person, we are asked about our sexual orientation every day. Now, they want to, people want to know what movies you're going to. Who's the photo yeah. of the that cute person in your your wallet or now on your yeah. laptop?
1: Where did you go on vacation? Who'd you go with? Ten cute yeah. guys. That's interesting. Yeah, I went to. But Providence seriously, South though, you look oh, at Facebook that. and you're going, "Uh huh, ten guys go to Mykonos." Sure, you could be straight. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, maybe.
0: Uh, and the problem yeah. is that sometimes. Uh, no, there were a lot of lesbian, gay, bisexual individuals who served openly and commanders didn't care. And that was the point. Yeah, is yeah, if, that. If, that. if commanders were willing to look the other way, you were fine. But it really just took one uh, you know, homophobic service member to turn you in. It took one commander who felt compelled to do something about it, and your career would end. Right. And the result is that you no, know, uh, in the span of Don't Ask, Don't Tell – the Pentagon was discharging two to four people every day for being gay right. two right. to four people, so not some insignificant number and you know the people that that impacted you no know, more broadly as they saw their brothers and sisters being routed out uh, you know it was had a huge impact right and i right. I'd, I'd add one more thing you know yeah. despite these promises that you could you know read the advocate and uh, go to gay bars and, and listen to Melissa Etheridge CDs. and uh, There was also a, sort of a footnote in in the regulations that said, uh, and yet, even if you do these things, uh, these are not uh, grounds for exclusion of that evidence, uh, and you have no substantive or procedural rights to challenge anything that we do. So that just basically erased <laughs> all the promises and that one
1: clause. We promise to be nice, but if we're not, eh.
0: Too bad. If we witch hunt, which they said they were going to do, well, you really can't no. challenge us for that. If you, if we are criminally prosecuting you, uh, which they could under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, right. uh, under a number of different provisions, uh, there was no basis to challenge uh, those under the Don't Ask, Don't Tell uh, regulations or framework.
1: Let me ask you something, looking back at that era, it, it, and I'm going to devil's advocate you a little bit, because I'm probably going to agree with you on this. But, you know, people when hillary ran for president for example people brought up don't ask don't tell again and how the clintons were horrible on gay issues which i mean they were not horrible on gay issues at all but but they brought up don't ask don't tell and i mean again you and i both lived don't ask don't tell i mean i was working with folks on the, with michael escott and those guys on the hill you know you were with the other guys and ah, i got to sort of say this, but did Bill Clinton screw us? What option did Clinton have when everybody was lined up against him?
0: Now, that's a, a very good question. Uh, and
1: Barney, By the way, Barney Frank, as I recall, was the one who brokered the deal. And I remember, I don't know, you weren't in the room with us. I was with Michael and we were watching the TV going, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, so we had, I mean, I felt like Clinton got screwed left and right. Although I also feel like Clinton didn't show enough backbone. That's my take.
0: Your, there's a moment that I describe in the book. Now, before founding Service Members Legal Defense Network, Michelle Beneky and I were both at the Campaign for Military Service. I assumed which, you were there, yeah. Which was yeah. a coalition of all the civil rights, human rights groups uh, trying to help Clinton with his promise. And there was a meeting. I wasn't part of this, but was told yeah. about it. There was a meeting with uh, George Stephanopoulos right. uh, in the Clinton White House. And he asked the the group, do you want us to issue an executive order and it's going to go down in flames, and they're going to pass a law, or should we eke out the gains that we can through these uh, Pentagon regulations? And the right. response uh, unequivocally was issue the executive order and go down in flames. Interesting. Uh, and the reason was we do not We want there to be disagreement among the different branches of government here. We don't right. want you all to be singing from the same hymnal here. Right, right. And in fact, what then happened in a number of the court cases litigating Don not Ask, Don't Tell, is the judges noted that yeah. who are we to overturn uh, an agreement uh, widely yeah. agreed to by the commander-in-chief, the secretary of defense, the chairman of the joint chiefs, and Congress? It just made it so much more difficult to suggest yeah. that— uh, and actually, was more nuanced than it was. And, and,
1: and I remember, and uh, granted, I was younger at the time, but even now, I would say, I re- Colin Powell was chairman of the Joint Chiefs at that point, as I recall, he had to have been at that point. Yes. And so we're talking like General Milley today, okay? The top, you know, uniformed military officer, very powerful at this point. And Powell, especially, you know, well spoken. I mean, really, uh, meaning very good on TV. He already, because of the the Gulf War, he already had had a. Uh, you know, a very well-known persona on TV as well. So the public knew him and trusted him. And Powell, I recall, I want to say it was a week or two before the inaugural, Powell was already speaking out publicly against this. And clearly he was undercutting the incoming president. He was undercutting him. He was cutting him off at the knees. And there was an argument at the time that Clinton should have fired Powell. And, you know, that I don't think was Clinton's style because Clinton also had a whole thing on, you know, whether he was a draft dodger and all this kind of stuff, right, and the Republicans, as they do, were able to play that quite well against him. But I remember at the time thinking, and I still do think that, you know, you don't let your top military guy or any of your senior staff, in essence, undercut you as the incoming president because it sets the tone for everything going. And I wonder, had he gotten rid of Powell, things would have blown up anyway, but had Clinton been a little more of a badass, I wonder, I don't know, I just wonder.
0: I think President Clinton should have, uh, either prior to the inauguration or one of the first meetings after it, called. Uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff together, and he should have said, I want to make one thing very clear. I'm moving forward with this executive order. If you disagree with it, I will have your resignation today.
1: Bingo. Bingo.
0: That is the way that you exercise that kind of authority, especially on an issue that's going to be uh, controversial. The, The problem is that I don't think the Clinton administration understood Washington. It did not understand the Pentagon. It didn't understand what Kind of levers you had to push in order to achieve what you needed to. And so when uh, now the Clinton administration saw the enormous pushback, it was basically duck and cover. Bill Clinton said only one thing in the <laughs> six months between yeah. uh, inauguration and when he uh, announced "Don't Ask, Don't Tell," uh, and the one thing he said was, "Well, maybe we can develop separate barracks for lesbian, gays. Oh gaze. God! I remember, yeah, yeah. And I was like. What kind of support is that? Yeah, that's, that's just bizarre. So you
1: all don't have to shower with us. Yeah.
0: So, uh, yeah. but I think it's also true, uh, you know, looking back at our own community, that we weren't organized well enough to support a president and his promise. Uh, we didn't have the ability to to, to counteract what was happening uh, in Congress and the and the Pentagon. And that was a lesson that I really sort of took to heart when Michelle and I co-founded Service Members Legal Defense Network is, you know, here we are in in 1993, uh, the campaign for military service is dissolving because it was a a, loosely put together coalition for this sole purpose. And, uh, you know, here we were facing starting an organization when uh, the general public did not support gay serving openly. No, 90% of those in the armed forces, according to one poll, were not comfortable with the gay people serving openly. And you had a vast bipartisan majority, including the president, that just supported this uh, discriminatory law. And so how do you even begin? You're like at the the nadir of (laughs) trying to start a movement for repeal. And how do you even start to do that? And, uh, you know, I think it's I told Michelle, this is going to take us 20 years. To do yeah. it. Uh and I look back and sort of laugh. Even though we did it in seventeen, I still laugh now, thinking that was just wildly optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> no, no civil rights battle is done uh within 17 years. But well, no, so we, let's we so, to turn it around.
1: Yeah. So let's let's then start with that part of the story then. So okay, you guys form SLDN and uh tell people what SLDN's Sort of day to day strategy. You guys were formed as a legal defense group, literally. So you were formed as a litigation group, in essence, um, on the military issue, helping military service members. So there was a personal aspect, meaning individuals in trouble you were helping, but you also had kind of a, I say, an ACLU aspect, meaning uh, you know the ACLU takes cases looking at the larger issues they're trying to change and affect and defend in society at large. They don't just help somebody because somebody's in trouble. That's not really the ACLU's job. And that's what you guys were doing as well. You were taking these cases, but you were also fighting them with this mindset towards, like you said, a larger strategy to overturn the ban and let gays and lesbians and bisexuals serve. So tell us about that and, and sort of use that as your segue for now, this second half of the story from we've got the ban in place and taking us to repeal.
0: So part of our strategy, as I, as I mentioned, the only way you can get rid of Don't Ask, Don't Tell at this point is either for the courts to overturn it or for Congress to overturn it. And we decided that uh, we would do both the litigation and the policy, but both were going to be fueled by uh, individual cases providing legal services. Our, our hope was to give service members some kind of fighting chance against this law, and we wanted to either make those promises work, that they weren't going to witch hunt and criminally prosecute and harass and that they were going to give latitude to people to be a little bit open by going to bars and such. Uh, So we wanted to to give them a fighting chance and and try to make some of this work. Or we were going to find out that, in fact, it was all a lie Uh, and we would be able to shine a bright light on sort of the subterfuge that no, any of the promises you, you thought you heard coming out of the administration and the Pentagon on "don't ask, don't tell" were were in fact not true. And so Michelle and I rolled up our sleeves. Now, literally, we started with no money. We didn't have an office. We had no paid staff, and we got busy to work. And I, you know, I sort of wondered how are people even going to find out about us. And right. that turned out not to be a problem. You know, we had a thousand. Uh, cases between the two of us just gonna, in the first I was going to
1: say, as I recall, we kept having like a new service member being kicked out a day. That was a huge story. And we were just in the news, in the news, in the news, in the news, which was good for PR purposes and hopefully yeah. change purposes. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing that we always
0: had to do and our promise, of course, to the clients was, you no, know, we weren't there to convert their cases into media but only if it was in their legal interest to do so. So the stories that you heard were just sort of the tip of the iceberg of the sort of things that we were fighting. And, no, it was heartbreaking. You had people calling us. uh, One of the very first was uh, Craig Hack, who the Marine Corps launched an investigation into him and a witch hunt of 21 other Marines uh, in Okinawa. Uh, You know, we had service members who were caught up in a witch hunt in Hawaii, where they were going after 17 individuals in all different branches, uh, because one airman uh, who was being criminally charged with assault uh, decided that the plea bargain he would take would be to name every guy that he had slept with and Hawaii.
1: and of course, uh, and of course, the military was happy to take it. And, yeah,
0: yeah, and the, so they, he was facing, you know, life in prison, and they bargained him down to, oh uh, I think it was seven months. Uh, if he coughed up these names and so we had
1: you also imagine the mindset of these military prosecutors going okay we've got you for assault like literally you know you 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 hurt somebody and it was it was worthy of life in prison but let's go after consensual sex instead and let the guy who actually the assault guy let the the, the violent guy go so we can get people having consensual sex as adults okay
0: yeah that was the reality of what was happening and they were you know they were uh sort of rabid in <laughs> their pursuit yep. of gay, lesbian, bisexual people. you know, They would take as evidence, I mentioned Melissa Etheridge. They used Melissa Etheridge CDs. The fact that... They actually did? Would, I didn't even remember that. Yes. Oh. Yeah. They'd go... You now, somebody went to the Dinosaur Golf Tournament in Palm Springs, and that was used as evidence against her that she must, therefore, be a lesbian because she likes golf. Yep. Uh, the, now, the things that they, they would take... With Craig Hack, they took a pair of platform shoes and now I teased them and said, Well, that's evidence of bad taste, not being gay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in the military's mind, that
1: was evidence. <laughs> Who else would wear platform Yeah. Sho- yeah. Wow. Oh, Dixon, did I lose you? No, I'm here. Oh, okay, sorry. No, you you had you had faded off. I got worried with Cliff. We have that issue with Cliff occasionally and I and me. <laughs> um, okay, so then so so you've been so you're doing these individual cases. Um, what's the longer-term strategy then? What was the actual long-term strategy from taking these individual cases to actually getting it either overturned or, or either in court or through the exam? Right, so the, the first
0: strategy for the first couple of years was uh, you know, we did these cases to try to help individuals. And I'm painting a bleak p- picture, and it was bleak, but we also yep. managed to save a lot of careers. We were able to intercede with the commanders and get yep. them to drop cases uh, in pretty regular fashion over the first yep. decade. A couple of those individuals uh, and or people who came to us also became litigation. In the crossover from the prior band, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, there were a couple of very promising cases. Colonel Kamenmeyer won her case under yep. the old policy and was reinstated. Uh, Petty Officer Keith Meinold won his case uh, under the old policy and, uh, you know, was able to continue to serve. Uh but all the old cases, the, you know, the Department of Justice then argued, well, that was the old policy. Here's the new policy now. We were hopeful that the courts would continue that same positive trend, that uh, this was a violation of equal protection and First Amendment rights. And we had uh, no, a couple of really great cases. One was Paul Thomason, who was just the stellar uh, lieutenant. Uh, in the Navy, and uh, one of the admirals for whom he worked said he was the finest junior officer with whom he'd ever served. Uh, another was Captain Rich Rickenberg, an Air Force officer, uh, who, again, had a stellar record. Uh, but the courts, as I as I hinted at, sort of changed their tune, and it was because uh, of the agreement uh, in Congress and uh, and the White House that this was know what was uh, the professional opinion of the military and how to conduct their personnel operation.
1: You've been listening to a free excerpt of the unprecedented podcast to hear the rest of the show and hear all of our past shows and support our work as independent media. Please go to patreon.com slash unprecedented podcast and become a subscriber for as little as $5 a month. You can have all of our old episodes, see all of our Zoom interviews, and support the great work that we hope you think we're doing promoting the democratic and liberal agenda. Thanks so much for joining us, folks. See you next episode.